Good morning. If you have your Bible or New Testament with you, would you take it out, please, and turn to Luke chapter 17? I'm turning in my Bible to Luke chapter 17, and I invite you to turn there with me uh, this morning. Luke chapter 17. We'll begin reading in verse 1. Uh, I'm grateful for the presence of all. Uh, we have a number who are visiting with us this morning. We have a few of our number who are out, no doubt, traveling to family for the holiday, uh, but a number who are here uh, in their absence, and we're so grateful that you've chosen to be with us this morning. I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. Uh, think for a moment, what are some of the hardest sayings of Jesus? You know, some of those teachings, sayings that just make you go, that's really difficult. That's a lot that Jesus is asking of us. Uh, there's some really good candidates for that, right? Uh, maybe right off the bat, we see some of Jesus' teaching um, in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he begins with those Beatitudes, and blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. The last of those Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. That's tough. And Jesus doesn't leave it there. He says that we're supposed to rejoice and be exceedingly glad when you're persecuted. That's, that's difficult. And he goes on in this same sermon to say some other difficult things. If somebody slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other cheek also. Uh, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. Some really difficult teachings there. But it's interesting, we have a number of places in our New Testament, in the Gospels, where other people actually express in the text how difficult the sayings of Jesus really are. You take, for instance, in Matthew chapter 19, after Jesus is teaching on divorce in that passage, some of his own disciples say, if such is the case with a man with his wife, do you remember? It's better for a man not to marry. Uh, and Jesus, he doesn't let them off the hook with those things. Um, he kind of doubles down on those things. And Jesus basically says, this is my paraphrase, yeah, maybe so. You know, sometimes you've got to become a eunuch for the kingdom of heaven's sake. That's a difficult teaching. We think about another occasion in John chapter 6 where Jesus teaches about this bread that comes down from heaven, which is referring to himself. Sometimes we refer to it as the bread of life discourse. And when Jesus is done with those sayings, again, some of his own followers, his own disciples, they look around and they say, this is a difficult saying who can accept it? And the very next thing that we see in the text is many of his disciples, after this occasion, walked with him no more. But to their credit, the apostles had more faith than that. And it's Peter himself when Jesus doesn't cut anybody any slack again, and he says to the twelve, do you also want to go away? There's the door if you can't accept this saying. Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You. You have the words of eternal life. And so we know that it must have been a difficult saying indeed if even the apostles, even those closest to Jesus say, this is a really, really hard teaching. And that's exactly what we find in Luke chapter 17. Will you open up your Bible to Luke chapter 17 and read with me here? These are all hard sayings of Jesus, but I think the first few verses of Luke chapter 17 have to be toward the top of the list, too. Luke chapter 17 and verse 1. Then he said to the disciples, his followers, It is impossible that no offenses should come, 
You know, some, somebody's going to be caused to stumble. That's going to happen. That's reality. But woe to him through whom they do come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than he should offend one of these little ones. Take heed to yourselves. If your brother sins against you, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times in a day returns to you saying, I repent, you shall forgive him. In these four verses, Jesus calls us, his disciples, to act, or in one instance, to not act, in three specific ways. And this is all in regard to others, especially as we think about our brethren. Number one... He instructs us, do not ever act in such a way that it causes others to stumble. You know, people are going to stumble. That's the reality of living in this world with temptation and sin. But you cannot, do not be the person who causes someone to stumble. Number two, he instructs us that we need to rebuke those who are in sin. Rebuke those who are sin. And specifically he says if somebody sins against you, you need to go to them and you need to rebuke them for that sin that they've committed. And number three, Jesus says that we need to forgive and we need to forgive over and over and over those who have sinned against us but come to us in repentance. In fact, if somebody sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back and says, I repent, you shall forgive him. That's what you're supposed to do. And Jesus punctuates these three concepts by using three commands. In these four verses, we see three direct commands from Jesus. Number one, he says, Take heed to yourselves. Look at yourself, look at your own life, and you may have the right to do all sorts of things in your life, but if any of those things cause your brother or sister to stumble, what does he say? It would be better if you were drowned. It would be better if you took one of those giant millstones that they they, uh, ground grain with, one of those giant millstones, hang it around your neck, throw you into the sea. It is better for you to die physically, Jesus says, than to cause someone else to be lost eternally. Is that a hard saying? Yeah, you better believe it is. But Jesus commands, take heed to yourself. You can't control somebody else, but take heed to yourself. The second command, he says, rebuke him. Now, this is not a suggestion from the Lord, right? This is something that you are required to do in matters of sin, not in matters of judgment, not in matters of personality, but if this is a sin that's going to keep somebody else out of heaven, you're supposed to go to this person and you are supposed to rebuke this person. And then finally, if someone comes to you and repents, Jesus commands from the mouth of your Savior, hear this command, forgive him, even if it's seven times in the same day. And the emphasis... And all three of these is on helping my brother or sister to get to heaven, right? Isn't that the goal? Isn't that the goal for every one of us to get to heaven and to help as many other people as we can to get to heaven as well? And by taking heed to ourselves and how our actions and inactions sometimes impacts other people and their relationship with God, by going to those who are in sin with rebuke saying, you can't live this way, and by forgiving those who repent, we are helping other people get to heaven. But these things aren't easy. 
These things are difficult. And uh, if you're someone who underlines uh, in your Bible or highlights in your Bible, I I want you to highlight especially this phrase, take heed to yourselves. It's found right in the middle of these four verses at the beginning of verse 3. God knows that you can't control anybody else, that the only person you can control is yourself. And if somebody else stumbles, if somebody else sins against you, or if somebody else won't listen to you when you tell them that what they're doing is wrong, you can't make them do what is right. That's just with, beyond our power. But you can take heed to yourself to make sure that you're not the one causing them to stumble. You can take heed to yourself to make sure that you're the one who has gone to them when they're in sin. And you can take heed to yourself to make sure that you're the one who is being forgiving, not unforgiving in this person's life. And, and I admit that these are, these are some really hard teachings. Uh, not hard to understand, but hard to put into practice, hard to live Uh, especially when we think about real-life scenarios where somebody has hurt us, wronged us, sinned against us. And the disciples, well, not really the disciples, the apostles, not just some random followers, but these same apostles who said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We value these words. We know that these are the words that are going to lead to life. These same apostles say what in verse 5? And the apostles said to the Lord... Increase our faith. Lord, help us out. That is difficult. That is hard to accept. Increase our faith because I'm not sure I have faith enough to do those three things that you're asking us to do. And Jesus, again, as his pattern was with all of the hard sayings that we've talked about this morning, he doesn't cut the apostles any slack here. He's like, listen, this is your duty. This isn't even something that you should be proud of or think that you've done something great. Hey, look at me. I forgave those people. I rebuked those people. I wasn't a stumbling block to those people. Don't think that you've done some great thing if you do these hard sayings. This is what's required of you. This is not something where you're going above and beyond. This is just your duty as my disciples. Keep reading in verse 6 with me. Uh, Jesus puts it this way. So the Lord said, if you have faith as a mustard seed, even small growing faith, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by the roots and be planted by the sea and it would obey you. And which of you, having a servant plowing or tending sheep, will say to him who has come in from the field, come at once and sit down to eat? But will he not rather say to him, prepare something for my supper? And gird yourself and serve me till I have eaten and drunk, and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank that servant because he did the things that were commanded him? I think not. Jesus is saying, what, you, you want me to do some big thank you because you do these things? Verse 10, so likewise you, when you have done all those things which you are commanded... Take heed to yourself, rebuke him, forgive him. When you've done all the things that you are commanded, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have only done what was our duty to do. It's not that these things are easy, but they're required and they're expected for a servant of God. And even if we do them all, we are to say, 
we are unprofitable servants. We have done what was our duty to do. Am I wrong in saying this is tough? That this is a hard saying? Sometimes it is hard for any of us from time to time to find the motivation to accomplish such difficult demands by Jesus, these and others. What motivation do we need to have to have faith enough to do God's will in these ways? Fear? Sure. I mean, duty sometimes comes from fear of God. That's the beginning of knowledge. Respect for who God is and his authority? Absolutely. Love for God? No doubt love is a motivating or maybe the biggest motivating factor. But I think we're given a clue in this text of one of the most powerful motivators of all and one maybe sometimes we overlook. Let's keep reading in our text and we're going to read verses 11 through 19 together. Think about these hard sayings. Think about the motivation we need in order to have faith to do these things. And let's see if we can make application to what we see in 11 through 19. Now it happened as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. Then as he entered a certain village, there met him ten men who were lepers who stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. So when he saw them, he said to them, Go, show yourselves to the priests. Um, that's what you had to do when you were cleansed of leprosy. They didn't know they were cleansed yet, but Jesus has already given them the command. And so it was that when they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, returned. And with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. So Jesus answered and said, we're, we're not ten cleansed, but where are the other nine? Were there not any found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, arise, go your way, your faith has made you well. I want you to think about this leper for just a moment. Here's my question. Do you think this Samaritan leper, with all of his gratitude, with all of his faith for what Jesus had done for him, do you think he would have balked at any of the commands that Jesus gives earlier in this chapter? Do you think he was properly motivated to not be a stumbling block, to rebuke those in sin if necessary, and to forgive those who repented to him? Do you think he would be willing to do those things? Um, can I hear your head rattle this way or that way? After what Jesus has done, can you imagine him saying, you know what, I just don't think I'm going to forgive other people. I, I know Jesus said to do that, but I'm just not going to do that. Or out of gratitude for what Jesus had done, don't you imagine he would be willing to do anything that Jesus commanded him to do? Absolutely. And so we see that gratitude, thankfulness, is that powerful of a motivator. Uh, it's weird to have the title slide when we're already past the midway point in the lesson. <laughs> but I want us to see the progression of Jesus' teaching here. He's telling us that it's easy 
in some ways, to have faith enough to do what needs to be done. Even those hard sayings, if you are truly and deeply thankful for what has been done for you. And in a week where we're going to celebrate Thanksgiving, it's a good occasion to remember what Christ has done for us, to be thankful for that and see the motivation that that should provide for us as Christians to do whatever it is He requires of us. Beloved, we have been cured. If you're a Christian this morning, we have been cured of something far more damaging and far more deadly than leprosy. Christ has cleansed us of our sins and showered us on top of that with abundant blessings besides. If you're in the Bible class this morning, He has shown us mercy and grace and continues to do both of those things. Thanksgiving for that should motivate us to do whatever is required of us in God's service. And so this morning I want to apply that gratitude to those same three requirements that we've looked at in some detail this morning. If we apply gratitude to those three requirements, then gratitude for what Christ has done should keep us from being a stumbling block to our brother and sister in Christ. Our attitude should be, I am so grateful, I am so thankful for for my salvation, for my forgiveness, that I'm right with God. If I see it for everything that it is, how valuable it is, then how can I callously cause someone else to lose their salvation because I feel like I have the right to do something. Gratitude does not allow that attitude. Uh, And there are lots of places we could go to illustrate that, but I'm going to give one verse for each of these or one passage for each of these. Would you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8 for just a moment? 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Let's begin... Let's begin reading in verse 7. So the church in Corinth was struggling with this concept of meat sacrificed to idols that then later on was sold in the marketplace and you could buy it at a discount. You know like when you go to the grocery store, you go down to HEB and they got that little section of discounted meats because they're about to expire. That's what we're talking about here. You could buy some meat at a discount if it had already been sacrificed to an idol in the marketplace. And for some of these Gentile Christians... That to them was anathema. I I can't eat that. That was sacrificed to an idol. And, And Paul says, well, there's really nothing wrong with that, but you need to be careful about how your actions are going to impact other people. So let's read uh, beginning there in verse 7. However, there is not in everyone that knowledge that it's just meat. For some, with conscience of the idol, until now eat it as a thing offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. But food does not commend us to God, for neither if we eat are we better, or if we do not eat are we worse. There's no no, uh, better or worse here in this situation. You can eat the meat, you cannot eat the meat. Both are allowable. Verse 9, but beware, lest somehow this liberty of yours, that you have the right to eat this meat, become a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish, for whom Christ died? 
But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Christ died for them and you say, I don't care, it's my right, I'm going to do it whether they sin or not. Therefore, verse 13, here's Paul's commitment to this. If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Now, for us Texans, beef, it's what's for dinner. That's a big ask, isn't it? If it means that my brother's going to go to hell if I continue to eat meat, I'm willing to give meat up. That should be our attitude, right? And what motivates us to have that attitude? I know what God has done for me. I know that he has saved me. And that is worth me giving anything else up in the hopes, in the desire that I might help my brother or sister get to heaven. I am not going to be the reason that somebody goes to hell. Now, they're going to stand before God. They're going to stand before God for themselves. They're going to have to answer to God for the things that they have done in the body, whether good or bad. I understand all of those things. But may it never be that I am the stumbling block. It'd be better if a millstone were hung around my neck and I were thrown into the sea. There are lots of practical applications that we can make to this, um, and maybe my timing is perfect that I waited until it was cold outside to make this application, but I, I think about the things that we wear and the exposing of our nakedness in this way. That has become a, a hot-button issue in many ways, and maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong about that. I don't think I am, but maybe I'm wrong in terms of what I believe the Bible teaches about what we can and cannot expose to, of our body to others. But here's my question. Is it worth it if it's my right? Is it worth it to expose myself in these ways if it causes another to sin? Is it worth it? Yes, I think about women with men, of course. But, but even what about with other women? What if it causes them to violate their conscience, that they see you wearing that and they say, well, I guess that's okay for me to wear that. Maybe they even take it a further a step further where it's something that you would even consider to be sin. And in our culture, we, we push back about that idea and we say, well, no one can tell me how to dress. And maybe there's been some really poor teaching in times past that somehow women have the responsibility to make sure that none of their brothers and sisters, brothers in Christ or maybe sisters in Christ sin in that way. They're going to have to stand before God and be accountable for the things that they've done in the body. Absolutely. But if I can be a help to keep from that, don't I have that responsibility? Aren't I grateful enough to God that I never want to be a stumbling block? Yes, everyone is culpable for their own sins. But I don't want to be the reason why someone sins. Offenses will come, and maybe they'll stumble. But it's not going to be because of me. And gratitude allows us to accomplish that. Secondly, gratitude for what Christ has done for us helps us to rebuke effectively and with the right attitude. Turn to Galatians chapter 2, if you would. Galatians chapter 2. I love, I love Paul. Um, he's just going to do what's right, man. At least as he understood it, he was going to do what's right. And in Galatians chapter 2, he doesn't just do what's right. He actually... Uh, recounts to the brethren in Galatia this uh, conflict that he had with the apostle Peter of all people. And in verse 11, this is what he says. 
Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. I rebuked him for his action. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Peter became a stumbling block to all these others. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, If you, being a Jew, live in manner of, of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, you know, you eat all of these unclean things, we know Peter doing that, and you associate with these Gentiles, you do all of these things. If you live in this way, then why do you compel Gentiles to live As Jews, why do you Judaize, we might put it in those terms. And the rest of what we see here in this chapter is a response to Peter from Paul. And what was Paul's motivation? He makes a really tight, good argument here that's really beyond what we're studying this morning. But what was Paul's motivation to withstand Peter to the face and rebuke him in this way? I want to suggest it's verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul says. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who, listen, loves me and gave himself for me. I know what God has done for me. And I've given my life totally over to him. So Peter, I love you. Peter, I love you. You've done amazing things. But I'm going to rebuke you for this sin because I care about you and I care about all those that you're influencing with what you're doing. I am so appreciative for for what God has done. I can't do anything but come to you. Look at what Christ has done for me, Paul says. I'm so grateful for that. And I'm not going to throw it away because of peer pressure. And I'm not going to let anybody take it away from somebody else, even Peter. And wouldn't we, as Christians ourselves, be so much more effective in talking to people about their sin if we were compelled to do so because of love for their soul and gratitude for what God has done for us? Not that we're we're motivated because of the wrongs that we've suffered or the pain that we feel. Those things are real and those things are powerful. But what if our strongest motivation, whenever we went to someone about their sin, was just concern for their soul and gratitude for the salvation that we found in Jesus Christ? And for every single one of us, one of the reasons why we found that salvation was because someone at some point in our life came to us and said, look, this is wrong and you can't live this way. And with a good and honest heart, we responded and said, they're right. I've got to change. Shouldn't we want to pass that blessing on to somebody else in gratitude of what God has done for us? That's what Paul did. That's what we should do as well. And then finally, gratitude for what Christ has done for us, like the leper, should help us to forgive others. Why is it so hard to have a forgiving attitude? Uh, That's really a silly question, isn't it? The answer is in the asking. Because in order to be in a position to forgive someone else, 
There has to be something that was done to us that merits forgiveness. There has to be a wrong suffered. It means that I've been hurt. It means, from our viewpoint at least, we've been wronged. It means that an injustice was was done to us or maybe done to someone that we love. And and what gratitude does in that moment is it is it defeats our self-righteousness to where we say, I've been wronged, and we forget that, that, yeah, we've wronged other people as well. Gratitude reminds us that this is always a two-sided coin, this idea of repentance and forgiveness. Have you ever, have you ever hurt someone else so badly that you just wish you could take it back? Now, sometimes I ask for hand-raising, sometimes I don't. I'm asking for it this time. I want you to raise your hand if you've ever hurt someone else and you wish you could take it back. Raise your hand. That's almost 100%, right? That means that each and every one of us know what it's like to be in this position where we need forgiveness. And in that moment, remember what it was like? Didn't you hope so badly that they would just forgive you? Of course you did. And maybe they have forgiven you, maybe they haven't, maybe you've repented, maybe you haven't. But when you are forgiven in that moment, what blessed relief it brings. Amen? And when we've been sinned against and the shoe is on the other foot, we need to put ourselves in the shoes of the other. That shouldn't be tough for the Christian because we all realize that we are in his or her shoes, right? In our relationship with God, each and every one of us have fallen short where we are in need of the forgiveness of God. And gratitude for what Christ has done for us in forgiving us should help us to be able to forgive others even if they come to us seven times in a day seeking that forgiveness. Um, Let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. This is our final passage, Matthew chapter 18. Through the years I've preached out of this text many times because there are few more motivating passages to be found in all the Bible, in my judgment. Let's take just a moment to look at Matthew chapter 18 and the lesson will be yours. Here's Peter again, verse 21. Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Ironically, Jesus is going to say, well, seven times in a day, maybe. But here Jesus' response is this. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, here's his parable about it. The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. The king is God in this parable. This is God. And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That is an unpayable amount. He could live to be a 1,000 years old. He could break the record of Methuselah and he would be unable to pay this amount back. Some people have said $6 billion. Uh, We know that this is more more money than Herod the Great took in in taxes in a year, okay? So think about all the taxes that Texas brings in. I'm going to pay somebody that back. No, you're not. It's an unpayable amount. The king is God. Who is this servant? We can raise our hand again. It's us, right? That's me. I am this servant. 
there's an unpayable debt that I owe to God because of my sin. Okay, you see the image. But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. That's what he deserved. That was the way it worked in that society. The servant therefore fell down before him saying, Master, have patience with me and I will pay you all. No, you're not, but that's a good heart, I guess. I want to pay it back. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion and he released him and he forgave him the debt. That's mercy that he shows him. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. That's uh, 20 weeks of common labor. Some people say that's uh, twelve to $15,000. That's a big amount. But could you pay that back eventually? All, I say all of us. Many of us have paid back debts that large or larger, right? You can pay that back. Who is the other servant? The king is God, the first servant is us. The other servant are those people that we are supposed to forgive. And so he owes him this amount. And what does this servant do? He laid his hands on him and he took him by the throat saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him saying, Have patience with me and I will pay you all. But he would not. But he went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. Like he's going to pay it from prison. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and they came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant just as I had pity on you? I showed you mercy and grace. Could you not show mercy and grace and forgiveness to this other servant? And his master was angry, rightfully so. And delivered him up to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. That's what he deserved. So, Jesus makes application. My heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you, from his heart, does not forgive his brother his trespasses. What's the motivation? I am so grateful for what God has done for me that I am willing to forgive someone else. Gratitude allows us to do the tough thing and forgive. These are hard sayings. Who can accept them? Ah, we know, don't we? We know exactly who can accept these hard sayings. The one who is saved in Jesus Christ and is grateful for that salvation. And if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, oh, what is available to you this morning? The opportunity to have your sins washed away for that unpayable debt that you owe to be forgiven. And not just be forgiven by God's mercy, but for God to heap abundant blessings of eternal life on top of that as well. If you've not yet come to God in humble submission to put Christ on in baptism, there is water that is ready. And if you will go down into that watery grave, you can rise to walk in newness of life, being made pure and holy and clean, being changed by the blood of Jesus. And if you're already a Christian and you're struggling with some of these hard commands, be it one of these three or another, know that you're not alone in these things, but we have one another. We have one another to help and uplift and encourage and to pray for one another. And so if we can help you this morning, come now while together we stand and while we sing.